Between back to school and sports, my kids are all about their snacks this time of year, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that also won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market, an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. We're all about the Lara Bar, cinnamon sunflower seeds, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but I don't have a lot of time. So quick and simple options are a must. That's why I love the Vitamix. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last and come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com slash shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. We all know that added sugars are linked to childhood obesity and other chronic diseases, but what is it doing to our kids' brains? What we're finding is that in our modern food environment, so many foods are loaded with added sugars and that this overstimulation of the dopamine system is basically happening all day long. That's Dr. Nicole Avina, a research neuroscientist, expert in nutrition, diet, and addiction, and the author of five books. She is currently an assistant professor of neuroscience at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City and a visiting professor in health psychology at Princeton University. She is also a sought-after speaker and media expert and has appeared on shows like Dr. Oz and The Doctors. We'll talk about what happens in the brain when it gets a hit of sugar, if research supports a link between sugar and ADHD, and how to limit the amount of sugar in your kid's diet. Well, Dr. Ivana, thank you so much for coming on the Food Issues podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Oh, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, you know, I was looking through my notes this morning as I, I was preparing for this interview and I searched your name and your name actually came up in some old files of mine. And I realized that I interviewed you years ago at Fox News for a story about how to have a healthy pregnancy if you're overweight. So I didn't realize we had, you know, connected. 
Yes, that's right. I remember that. Oh, wow. Great. That's great. So let's first talk about your story and your path to neuroscience and nutrition and diet and addiction. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting story. I got interested in neuroscience when I was in college and my advisor at the time had said, you know what, if you like the brain and neuroscience, you might want to think about doing a PhD in it. And it sounded like a good idea. So I ended up going to Princeton to do my PhD in neuroscience. And the lab I was working in there was interested in motivated behavior and what makes people, you know, do things that they should do or shouldn't do and what kind of motivates people to make their decisions. And I was starting to get interested in decisions about food and what people eat because facing this obesity crisis. And so many people make really poor decisions about what types of foods they should eat. So it really kind of led down this path of studying whether or not food could potentially be addictive in some cases. And maybe this is part of the reason why people are making bad choices, not because they're really even choosing to eat unhealthy food, but because many of the foods in our modern environment are affecting us in ways like things like drugs and alcohol can affect us and can change our brain accordingly. Yeah. And I know that you're an author, but how do you work today? What does your business look like? Oh, so it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. I don't quite know how to answer that one. Um, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot of different things going on at the same time. So um, my, you know, primary work is I, I teach and I, you know, do research and then I also write books um, I'm also a mom, so I'm <laughs> doing the mom stuff too. Um, but really right now, you know, I like juggling a lot of balls at the same time. It keeps things interesting. And I think that, you know, all the different things that I do kind of inform each other. So, you know, teaching undergraduates is just so valuable to me and, you know, doing research and helping to synthesize the latest research studies in the media and talk about you know, things in the books that I'm writing so that the average person who doesn't necessarily have a neuroscience or a nutrition background could understand them is something that is just, you know, really interesting to me. Yeah, I think you have a unique gift in that way to really distill the information and make it consumer friendly. Oh, thank you. And I think it's important. I think that a lot of times we find that scientists often stay in the lab. And that's great because we need scientists doing this wonderful work but we also need scientists to help us to better understand the science. It's not always quite so easy to, you know, disseminate all these facts and to really understand what we're doing here. Um, and so that's why I enjoy doing it. I like, you know, making things easier for people to understand so that they can make better decisions about their own health. Yeah, yeah. And so let's talk about sugar and the brain. So what happens to the mind and the body when we consume sugar? Well, a lot. and. One of the things that we've learned from the research studies that we've done in my lab and from you know labs across the world is that when people overeat sugar, it produces this cascade of events in the brain. And so it is the sweet taste that can activate our brain reward system, the dopamine system, brain opioids, all of these neurochemicals that are associated with pleasure and reward are activated when we eat something sweet. And that's great. It's fine if that happens once in a while. But what we're finding is that in our modern food environment, so many foods are loaded with added sugars and that this overstimulation of the dopamine system is basically happening all day long. Because if you take a look at the diet of a typical American, it contains an excessive amount of added sugar. And so what happens when this is 
occurring in our brain is that it leads to these neurochemical changes that lead to these addiction-like behaviors. And so we start to see signs of, you know, binging, wanting to consume more than we did in the previous time we had that food, signs of, you know, tolerance where people feel like, oh, I used to feel satisfied if I had, you know, one or two chocolate chip cookies, but now I need to eat, you know, seven. And even withdrawal where when people decide, oh, you know what, I'm going to clean up my diet, I'm going to stop eating all these processed foods, a lot of times people will actually go into a physical state of withdrawal where they'll get headaches, they'll be lethargic, they'll get achy. And this is because it's our brain's way of adapting to no longer having all this sugar available at all times. So it's really a combination of you know neurochemical changes, but also changes in our behavior that result when people are constantly overeating sugar. Yeah. And and there's a process, right? There's a kind of a pathway that happens with our dopamine receptors. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So normally when we taste a new food, it releases dopamine. And that's because dopamine is important, not only for the rewarding aspect of food, but also for the novelty aspect of food. And if you think about our ancestors, you know, we evolved from hunters and gatherers. So we used to have to pay attention to the foods we were eating, because if you ate a new food that maybe didn't taste that right and then it suddenly made you ill, it could be a life or death matter. And so we developed this innate ability to pay attention acutely to novel tastes. So the very first time you eat something novel, it releases dopamine. But typically what happens is that after you've had a food a few times and it doesn't make you ill, then your brain doesn't release dopamine in response to it. But what's really interesting with sugar And a lot of these highly processed foods that we're finding so available is that they have the effect that is more like a drug. And so what happens with drugs of abuse is that every time you take a drug of abuse, it releases dopamine, no matter what the drug, you know, cocaine, alcohol, morphine, they release dopamine. That's really the hallmark of the addiction. But what we're seeing happening with sugar is that it's also repeatedly releasing dopamine. So every time you have a bowl of ice cream or that scoop of ice cream, it's going to release dopamine. And that's more like the effect we would expect to see with a drug and less like what we would expect to see with uh, something like a food. And that release of dopamine then, you know, causes down uh, trend changes in terms of the receptors for dopamine. There's changes in the gene expression for dopamine. And these changes can then lead to a cascade of other events that could have an impact on other neurochemicals that are in this reward system. So it's, really a process in which by overeating sugar, we end up producing, you know, this whole cascade of events that really can have an impact, not only on how we feel, but on how we end up behaving around the food. Yeah. And can consuming sugar make you also crave more sugar? And is there a difference between whether you're consuming added sugar or natural sugar? Consuming sugar too much can lead to more cravings. And that's something that we see happening in the research. Um, We've seen this even in our animal model studies where we've given sugar to our lab rats just to be able to control all the variables. And the rats that are overeating sugar are the ones that are more prone to crave it. And they're more prone to be, you know, willing to press the lever a thousand times in order to get access to it. And so certainly over consuming it does have an impact on, you know, our craving of the sugar. Now, your question about whether or not it's processed sugar versus natural sugar, that's a really great and important question. And I think it's important to talk for a minute about the difference between those two things. So 
When we talk about processed sugar, what we're really talking about, in my opinion, is added sugar. And there's a big difference between the sugar that we add to, you know, our bowl of cereal or sugar that we're adding, um, you know, to different foods that we eat or the sugar that's being added to the processed foods by the food companies compared with naturally occurring sugars. Like if you bite in an apple, there's going to be sugar in that apple, but it was put there by nature. There's really no manipulation of the amount of sugar that's in that apple. And so we find that it's the foods that tend to be the ones with added sugar that are producing this effect, not foods that contain, you know, naturally occurring sugars. And the reason for this is because if you think about it, if you bite into an apple, yeah, you're going to get a little bit of sugar, but you're also going to get fiber. You're going to get other nutrients. And these are able to mitigate the effect that the sugar would have on the systems in our brain. And we don't see that happening with processed foods because there's so much sugar in them. There's an exorbitant amount of it that it's not able to regulate. And so that's why we see these changes occurring. Yeah. And we're also just inundated with added sugars in so many sneaky sources and all day long, right? Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest challenge for people is really just trying to identify the sources of sugar. And I think that, you know, you might think you're eating healthy and this happens to me too. And I feel like I, I know a lot about this. You really need to pay attention to the labels and all of the information on processed foods, because a lot of times you might think you're consuming something that's completely healthy, but it contains added sugar. And so I really suggest that people familiarize themselves with different terms for sugar and understand that, you know, understanding what's on the back of those labels is so important because otherwise you might find that you're consuming much more sugar than you think. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to head to a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about how sugar affects the gut and in turn can affect the brain. If you want mealtimes to be easier and less stressful, getting your kids in the kitchen to cook is one of the best things you can do. I know it's really encouraged my kids to eat their vegetables and try new foods, and it's given them a ton of confidence in the kitchen. But if you don't know how to cook or you don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, and it's designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. With Kids Cook Real Food, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like Tex-Mex white bean dip and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that my kids made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods, and become healthy, adventurous eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. 
So in our last segment, we were talking about sugar and how it can increase sugar cravings. And so Dr. Ravena, let's talk now about how sugar can affect the gut microbiome and in turn, the brain. Great questions. And this is something that is just so timely because so many people are interested in understanding this gut-brain connection. And, you know, it's interesting because when I first started doing neuroscience research back like 15 years ago, nobody really thought about the gut as having anything to do with our brain. And now we're finding that it's really directing our brains in many ways. It's sending information to our brains to tell us about our health and vice versa. And so there's a lot of communications between the two. And one of the things that I think I'm finding to be so interesting about how sugar can have an effect on this is that we're finding that when people overeat sugar, not only is it disrupting their brain neurochemistry, but it's also disrupting their their microbiome, their gut microbiome. And so we're seeing that this can have a negative impact, you know, not only on gastrointestinal conditions and making people feel, you know, just not so great from the gut standpoint, but also in terms of their immune health and also in terms of, you know, messages that are going to be sent from the gut to the brain in terms of helping us to better understand the relationship between those two. So I think that it's something that we're going to be hearing a lot more about, especially as more and more research is being done to look at the gut um, and its relationship to our, our brains. Yeah. So we had Dr. William Lee on the podcast and we were talking about COVID. And so I know this is such a huge question, but do you think that, you know, a lot of the cases of COVID could potentially have been avoided if we all had, you know, stronger gut health? Well, I mean, it's really hard to say we're learning every day about what COVID is and how it's happening. So it's hard to say, you know, what could or could not prevent it. But I will say that without a doubt, having a stronger immune system could help people to stay healthier and to fight it. And I think that one of the things that we're finding is that when we overeat sugar, it compromises our immune system and our immune health. And so the number one thing people should do if they want to stay healthy is to look at their diet. And this is something that I really hope that, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic will be that people will start to really understand that it's a holistic approach to health. It's not just about washing your hands and taking, you know, vitamin D. It's about looking at your entire diet because that is one thing that can directly impact your immune health. And so having a healthy diet, having a balance of all the different micronutrients that you need is really one of the best ways you could take care of yourself. So I'm hopeful that now that this has come to light, more and more people will be paying attention to their diet, avoiding processed foods, avoiding excess amounts of added sugars, because we know that those are harmful. Yeah, absolutely. And so before you talked a little bit about drugs like cocaine and you know, it, the way when we eat sugar, is it really kind of the same effect? Do we need to eat more to have that same, you know, dopamine hit? Well, what is interesting, if you do, you know, apples to apples comparison between cocaine and between sugar, you see that it's the pattern of release that is similar. So obviously, if someone, you know, does cocaine, that's going to cause an increase in dopamine that's going to be greater than what we're going to see with sugar. 
But what's important to take away is that it's the pattern of release. The fact that every single time somebody is, you know, using sugar, it's releasing dopamine. And so, you know, we're not going to get the high per se that you would get from, you know, a drug like something like cocaine, but you are producing that repeated release of dopamine that's going to lead you to want to consume it again and again and again. And it's going to lead you to feel, you know, not that great when you haven't had it for a while. And so this cycle of addiction emerges. And although it's not, you know, as exaggerated as what you'd see with something like cocaine or heroin, it's still existing. And I think it's in many ways more dangerous because people are basically able to walk around, you know, being addicted to these things. And it's not something that's life disrupting, right? I mean, people are you know, feeling good about, you know, what they're eating, but then they're not feeling that great later. So they eat more sugar. It's not until we start to see these health complications that arise where people start to see that their food addiction is harming them. And I think that's really something that is critical that we try to better understand and better educate people about. And I talk a lot about this in my book, Why Diets Fail, Because You're Addicted to Sugar, about, you know, how you can recognize if you're addicted to sugar, how you can get a handle on it before it leads to some of these health conditions that we're all trying to avoid, like diabetes and heart disease and things like that. Right. And a lot of these chronic conditions like childhood obesity, type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are in the rise in children. And so do you think that because, you know, kids are just getting hooked on sugar and it's just a cascade turning into a cascade of problems? I think so. I think that really targeting our youth, targeting women during pregnancy is critical for getting a handle on this. And we know that so many kids are basically being born with, you know, a sugar spoon in their mouth, essentially, because many of the foods that babies are introduced to first are fruits, which is great because, like I said earlier, fruits have a lot of fiber and other nutrients, but we're over sweetening our infants diets. And I talk about this in my book, um, what to feed your baby and toddler. This is something that I recommend parents definitely check out because I talk about the research that's been done on ways in which you can introduce solid foods to your baby and why, yes, it's important to have things like sweets, like fruits involved, but it's more important to introduce some of those, you know, not quite as tasty foods like, you know, broccoli and spinach and some of these vegetables that are so nutritious, but because babies have an innate preference for sweetness, they might not necessarily love those tastes. And if you look at the baby foods that are out there on the market, I mean, everything has a fruit in it, right? I mean, you can't really find anything that isn't sweetened with the fruit. And so it's masking that taste of vegetables. So we're essentially raising a generation of children who've never tasted pure vegetables. And what's going to happen when they become, you know, preschoolers and, you know, elementary school kids, they're not going to want to eat vegetables. So it's very important from a young age that we get kids exposed to the taste of just plain vegetables so that they can develop a preference for them and a taste for them. And that's going to make it much easier later on to get them to continue to eat them throughout their lifespan. 
Dr. Ravina, I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's so important. And in fact, last week on Food Issues, we interviewed Katie Thompson, who's the uh, co-founder and CEO of Square Baby. And we talked all about this, about how baby foods are completely unbalanced and, you know, have tons of applesauce in them. So I'll, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. So let's talk about the research around the link between sugar consumption and cognitive function and memory in, in kids specifically. Yeah, I think that this is something that is really interesting to think about. And I, like you said about children, a lot of research is now focusing on the role that excess sugar can have on children's ability to focus and to concentrate. And I think that it certainly plays a role. I think that diet plays an important role in you know how well our children are going to be able to do in school, how well they're going to be able to sit and absorb information and you know, to focus on reading and writing. And I think that there's so much research now coming out that is showing us that it can affect our brain in a way that can impair cognitive functioning. When kids are consuming excess amounts of sugar, it can really be disruptive to learning. And I think that this is something important. And I I feel like we need to do more. And I'm saying this as a parent too, um, to really educate our schools about this. Because, you know, my kids go to an elementary school where they're given, you know, sweet treats as rewards all the time. There's a candy dish in the principal's office. And, you know, it's something that I think is an innocent gesture, but I don't necessarily think that schools take it all that seriously in terms of how eating all these sugars all day long can have an impact on children's ability to focus and to concentrate. And the same happens with adults. I've worked with many, many adults over the years who decided that they want to change their diet and, you know, eliminate sugars and added sugars. And they really develop this mental clarity. I mean, I've had so many people tell me that they feel so sharp and so focused when they've been able to cut a lot of the added sugars out of their diet, that it's really just life changing. And I think that that's something that, you know, we really need to work on with our kids as well. Yeah. And it's not just the sugar that they're getting from rewards or you know, events or parties in school. It's also school breakfast, school lunch. They're loaded with added sugars, plus everything else that goes on in a child's life, right? They go to sports, they get a treat, they go to a party, whatever. It's all day long. It is, it is. And it would be fine if, you know, the principal was giving out candy once in a while and that was the only source of candy that those kids were getting. But like you said, it is all day long. And, you know, I think that we as parents need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, our kids are getting exposed to sugar all day long. And so let's not give it to them at home. Let's, you know, if we know they're going to get it unless we're following them around, swatting it out of their hands, which isn't realistic. (laughs) So I really think, you know, when I talk to people about this and I do this with my own kids, when we make the school lunches, when we make the snacks, we really try to focus on having zero added sugar or as little as possible because we know they're going to get it throughout the day in other ways. So if we can at least keep it out of the lunch boxes. That's one step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And and so what about ADHD and other mental health issues, mood and behavior, self-control, impulsivity? Can all of that be linked to added sugars? Does research support that link? I think it does. I think that there has been a lot of discussion about the role that sugar can play on our moods and on conditions, like you said, ADHD. 
And, you know, depending on which study you look at, you're going to get a different opinion in terms of, you know, the role that sugar plays. But I know anecdotally, people have talked about how changing their child's diet can have a significant impact on their symptoms of ADHD. And when they remove a lot of the added sugars and, you know, really try to focus on having a more wholesome, nutritious diet, it can have a positive effect. And I think that in my opinion, it's really something that's almost a no-brainer. I mean, it's not going to hurt anybody to clean up your diet or to clean up your child's diet. And if you can have an added benefit of it being able to, you know, reduce some of their ADHD symptoms and have them feel like they're in better control of themselves, then why not? Why not try it? And so I really think it should be something that parents think about and something that doctors discuss with parents as well. I think we just live in this culture where, you know, we go right to the prescription and, you know, I know it's sometimes is obviously necessary, but I also think that should be done in conjunction with some other types of environmental modifications, like changing the diet, like, you know, looking at how much exercise a child is getting. Maybe that needs to be something, you know, that they need to improve on as well. And so I think it needs to be a multifaceted approach and looking at the environment a child is in, especially their nutrition environment, I think is really key to getting a handle on many of the mood disorders and these other behavioral disorders that children often struggle with. Yeah, that's so important. And, you know, when kids are being kind of hit with sugar all day long, whether it's from something as sneaky as ketchup or a sauce or they're eating a dessert you know, there's this blood sugar dysregulation. So it's, you know, spike and crash, spike and crash all day long. And so how does that affect the brain? Well, these ups and downs are what we want to avoid because what happens when your blood sugar is going up, that means insulin needs to be released from your pancreas in order to get that sugar out of your blood and pull it into the cells where it can do its job. And so what ends up happening is that if our pancreas is working all the time to release insulin and we're having these constant spikes and dips in blood sugar levels, it can have a negative impact on our brain. And it can really, you know, cause our brain to have to work in overdrive to do all this regulation. And so having a more even keeled level of blood sugar is really ideal. And so that's why if you eat an apple, if we go back to that example, yeah, you're going to eat sugar, but it's going to release uh, the sugar into your blood much more uh, sustainably and slower than it would be if you ate a candy bar. And so you're going to have a much more even level of sugar in your blood that your body will be able to then utilize as opposed to eating something with you know added sugar that's going to lead to these like rapid spikes and then drops. And so that also has an impact on how we feel. And I think anyone who's ever, you know, chugged a soda or, you know, drank something real quick or ate something that had a lot of sugar in it real quick, you do get this feeling of, oh, yeah, I got all this energy. This feels great. But then that doesn't last. It's not sustainable. It might last for 20 minutes or so. And then you start to feel sluggish again. And so think about it. If this is happening all day long with these ups and downs, you go through these day where you're just basically cycling through, yeah, I feel great. Oh, no, I feel sluggish. And that's just not a great way to live. Great. So we're going to go to a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about how high sugar consumption can affect neurotransmitters in the brain. If you have picky eaters, you're not alone. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. 
But through the years, as both a journalist and a mom, I've discovered the secrets to raising kids who love their veggies and will eat just about anything. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free ebook, 15 Secrets to Raise Healthy Eaters and Put an End to Picky Eating. This book is filled with evidence-based real-life strategies that will help you raise healthy eaters without sneaking foods, bribing, negotiating, or making food into art projects. To get the book, just go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So Dr. Ravena, let's talk about high sugar consumption and how can it affect neurotransmitters in our kids' brains? Well, this is something that we, you know, think about from a lifespan approach. And I like to think about this from, you know, how sugar consumption can have an impact on our kids developing brains. And so that starts back when they're in the womb during pregnancy. And there's been a lot of research studies that have shown that excess amounts of sugar intake consumed during pregnancy can lead to changes in the way in which children's brains are developing. It can lead to changes in the gene expression for dopamine neurons and for these opioid neurons in our brains that essentially are the foundations for our brain reward system. So essentially, if somebody's eating way too much added sugar during pregnancy, it can rewire the brain of the baby before they're even born, and it's going to have an impact on the reward system and how they perceive different types of rewards after the fact. We've actually done some research experiments in my lab where we've uh, looked at sugar access in our rat models. And what we find is that if you give rats sugar while they're pregnant, they end up giving birth to babies that grow up to not only overeat sugar if they're offered it, but to be more sensitive to drugs of abuse. And so there seems to be this effect on the developing brain that can occur even before a child gets sugar for the first time, just through exposure in the womb. And I think that that's something that we need to be mindful of because, you know, I've been pregnant a few times and the doctor never told me not to eat sugar. They just said, oh, don't eat, you know, raw hot dogs or deli meats or whatever. (laughs) Right. And so I really think that this is another point of education where we can help people who are thinking about having a baby or who are pregnant to better understand why, you know, good nutrition is important. It's not just about avoiding foods that have like mercury and toxins in them. Obviously we need to do that, but we also want to make sure that we're putting nutritious foods in our body. And my book, um, what to eat when you're pregnant really covers that and covers, you know, what foods are important to eat during a pregnancy at the different stages of pregnancy. Cause it differs from, you know, the first, five weeks to what you need in the last five weeks are very, very different and how women can really be supported during their pregnancy journey and eat nutritious foods and still feel satisfied and then know that they're optimizing their diet to help their baby to develop as well as possible. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, Is there a reassuring tone for women who uh, are not pregnant? Can we kind of undo the damage that maybe we've already done? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important too for anyone who's listening who might be, you know, drinking a Slurpee while they're, you know, seven <laughs> months pregnant right now. We've all been there and it's it's fine. And this is one part of the puzzle. And uh-huh. so obviously if your child is exposed, you know, to lots of added sugars at an early age, it might just be a little bit more difficult for them to, you know, resist these things later on. The damage is not permanent. 
there are certainly things we can do in our environment and the way in which we work with our children and teach them so that they can better understand the choices that they make about the types of foods that they eat and why, you know, we need to maybe sometimes choose to eat things that we don't love the taste of, but it's because we love our bodies and we love being healthy. And so that's what we're choosing. We're choosing to eat something to nourish our body, not just eating the thing that tastes most delicious. So certainly there's different points during this process where we can make changes and nothing is set in stone, but it can just be more difficult if we have, you know, these changes that have occurred during pregnancy and in early life that can make it a little bit more resistant as kids are developing. Can overconsumption of sugar in, with children have long-term effects on their health? It certainly can. And I think we're seeing this in the vast number of cases of children who are struggling with being obese and having comorbid medical conditions that are associated with that obesity, like type 2 diabetes, for example. We're also seeing that you know children who are very young age are now starting to have problems with their cholesterol, problems with you know fatty liver disease. And these are things that we typically used to see in people that were in their 50s. And so now it's alarming that we're seeing 10-year-olds with fatty liver disease. So again, it comes back to our diet and what children are exposed to early on. And I think it comes down to better understanding that many of the processed foods that we've become reliant on do have a lot of added sugar. And I think we need to do more to make products available that are convenient and easy to get a handle on so that parents can, you know, provide their kids with nutritious food that's easy to make. And I think that that's a challenge of being a parent these days. I mean, I work, my husband works, we're busy, we got a lot going on. We don't always have time to sit down and cook a healthy meal. And so I really think that, you know, it's wonderful that there are some great food companies out there that have this mission in mind to make healthy, wholesome foods that are convenient so that we're not reliant on these overly processed foods that are really damaging our family's health. Yeah, that's so important. So as I was preparing for this interview, I'd read, I had read about high sugar consumption can reduce the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factors. Did I pronounce that right? Or BDNF? You did, yes. Okay. So what are these and, and what do we need to know? So BDNF is, like you said, it's brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And what this is, is this is essentially a factor that plays a role in neuroplasticity, which essentially allows our nerve cells in the brain to change in response to their environment. And so we need BDNF because it's something that basically allows us to have our brains maintain themselves. And so having these connections between our neurons is key and having these circuits between neurons is key for not only cognitive functioning, but for our emotional health as well. And so the fact that overconsuming sugar can reduce BDNF suggests that it's having a negative impact on not only our cognitive health, but also our ability to have our brains just function to their best of their abilities. And so we want to make sure that we're, you know, doing what we can to preserve the BDNF we have. And certainly cutting out added sugar is one way to do that since we know it can have a negative impact on it. And of course, during COVID, you know, we're all dealing with high levels of stress, but particularly concerning for our kids who 
uh, you know, I don't think can, can process it the same way and really get a full understanding about what's going on. What does, how does that, how does stress play into sugar cravings for kids and, and how can we help our kids through that? I've been doing so much on this topic lately, and it's such a good thing that you brought it up because so many people are struggling with stress-induced eating and stress-induced weight gain. And, you know, the pandemic has really caused many people to have a disruption, not only to their, their work and family life, but just also to their health. And so the stresses that we've all been under have really had a negative impact on so many people in very different ways. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that people have turned to sugar and food as a way to self-medicate, as a way to make themselves feel better. And I think that, you know, this has been particularly important to think about with our kids, especially with many schools having shut down for so long, kids were learning online they had more opportunities to kind of, you know, wander into the kitchen and graze on food and maybe are passively consuming calories and eating things maybe to help to soothe their anxiety or soothe the stress that they're having or the loneliness that they're experiencing. And so I think that that's why it's important that we talk to our kids about mindful eating, about the fact that, you know, when we make a decision to eat something, it has to have a purpose. And so we don't want to eat something if we're not hungry. We don't want to eat something to make us feel better. We want to eat something, you know, to nourish us because we're hungry and our body needs it. And that there's other ways that we can cope with our stressors and anxiety that don't involve eating junk food because that, you know, that's a quick fix. It's a Band-Aid. It's not going to solve your problem if you, you know, eat an ice cream because you're having a bad day. You'll have a moment where it might make you feel better, but it's not actually going to solve your problem. It's just going to give you more problems. So I think really addressing this with children is important. And it's not a conversation that parents often have because it doesn't really seem as serious, I think, to most parents, but it can become very serious very quickly. And so I think it is important that we are mindful of the fact that, you know, stress eating and soothing ourselves with food is just really not a good habit to develop. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, in the schools, I think definitely um, during the pandemic, and I'm sure my kids will will have these lessons again, but they have um, the school counselor come in and they they teach them the zones of regulation. And that's something actually I work on at home with my own kids. Um, But, you know, just kind of mindfulness, meditation practices help them all through that stress and anxiety that they're all experiencing. But then it's ironic, right? Because then at school, they're just, they're not eating healthy and they're not getting those lessons either. Right. I think that's where we need to do more, I think, with the school, with our education system. Really, there is no nutrition education in our schools. And it's really upsetting if you think about it, because we're seeing that this is really, you know, one of the leading preventable causes of death. Obesity-related conditions will soon take over smoking as the leading preventable cause of death in this country. Yet we have a rise in obesity rates among young children, and essentially we're not doing anything about educating them about nutrition. And we know that that is a big component of obesity. And so I really hope that we will start to see more efforts made in the schools to build this into curricula Um, because it's so important. And if we don't make changes and build this in so that, you know, the children who maybe are living in homes where their parents don't have access to this information and don't have the ability to communicate it to them, 
those kids can still get the resources and the information that they need to make better decisions about what they put in their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you talk to me about what are your favorite ways for your, and tips for parents to reduce the amount of sugar in their kids' diets and, and maybe even some that you've tried and have worked for your family? Oh, good question. And, you know, there are really, it depends on the kids. And I think that, you know, I've experienced this with my own kids where, you know, one of my children is a little bit um, easier to fool than the other. <laughs> I won't say which in case they're listening. Um, but I think it's important that, you know, you really just try to make swaps. And so like when we're baking cookies, let's say, we don't use all the sugar that they recommend. We'll maybe use half of it and we'll put in, you know, some nuts or some something else to make up the bulk. And it's not going to impact the recipe. It really won't. I promise you. Um, your kids are going to love cookies no matter what. It's not really about how much sugar they contain. And so really just trying to, you know, make healthier swaps where we can. Um, one thing that I've been doing for years that hopefully they'll still continue to eat the pasta sauce after they hear this. But <laughs> when um, we make our own pasta sauce, I'm from the old school. My grandmother used to make it fresh all the time. So, you know, I, I like to make it myself, but I add carrots to it, pureed carrots to sweeten it because so many of the commercially available pasta sauces have sh added sugar, a lot of it in them. And so we, you know, sweeten the foods with pureed carrots where we can. And that is a great way to get extra vegetables in. Another thing that I think is so important is to teach your children to be their own police. I mean, you have to remember they're going to go to school and have to make decisions for themselves. And we want them to understand that it's okay to have sweet treats now and then, but you need to know when to put the limits on and you can't take advantage. So if you go to school and it's Susie's birthday and her mom sent in cupcakes and you had one, then don't come home and ask for dessert because you had dessert already at lunch. Yeah. And so having that conversation and it's not about being restricted. It's not about not getting what you want. It's about, okay, I had my fill for the day because if I have more than that, it's going to hurt me. It's going to be unhealthy. And you know, I, I had what I had. I think that teaching your children that concept can be so helpful. And, you know, it's great because now with my kids, they'll come home from school and they'll say, oh, yeah, it was so-and-so's birthday, so we can't have any dessert. Okay, great. That's good. They're able to put, put those limits on because we want to really teach our kids to be able to do that because, like I said, we can't follow them around forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find this really difficult. I, um, I had a friend who was recently telling me that her and her family, instead of, um, I don't really know what they were doing before, but now they pick one day a week and the whole family comes together and decides on a special dessert or, or the kids will propose what they want. And so the family looks forward to it. You know, maybe it's a Sunday and they sit and they enjoy it. And so I told my girls about that and, and we're going to start doing that it's really hard to put restrictions on when other people give your kids treats. So, you know, last week, my daughter was at church on Friday night for a group and they gave her candy. And then two days later on Sunday, we're at church candy again. <laughs> and it's just so difficult, you know? It's true. I, and I, I think that's why it's, it's hard for parents, right? Because, you know, we have to be the bad guy. We're the ones always saying, no, you can't have it. No, you can't have it. Whereas everyone else in the world is saying, yes, you can. And so I think that it's one of those things like, you know, many aspects of parenthood where sometimes you just got to be the bad guy because we know in the end that 
we're the good guy, right? I mean, we're the ones that are making these decisions and, you know, having these rules in place for a good reason, because we want our kids to stay healthy and happy. And so I think that, you know, parents who are struggling with, you know, feeling the way that you're feeling, I think my advice to them would be, you know what, stick with it because, in the end, your kids are going to thank you when, you know, they don't have all these health related complications that many of their peers might have because they didn't have parents that were willing to step in and really, you know, try to work with their children to better understand why it's important to eat healthy. Yeah, that's great. So Dr. Ravina, thank you so much for your time today. This was so much great information. Can you tell me where listeners can go to learn more about you and your work? Oh, absolutely. So if you want to learn more, you could check out my website. It's drnicoleavina.com. And there we have links to all of our research articles, things in the media, just really all the different things about nutrition and neuroscience and development throughout the lifespan for kids, for adults. Um, I'm also on social media at Dr. Nicole Avina. So if you're interested in learning more, definitely check it out. Great. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Dr. Avina, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. That was a great interview with Dr. Nicole Avina. I geek out on all that science and I hope you walked away with a better understanding of sugar on the brain and how to curb the amount your kids get each day. I'd love to hear what you liked about this episode or any of the episodes. Just head to my website, julierevelant.com, find the episode and record a voicemail for me. Also be sure to go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so that we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to food issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.